This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. Hey, Eric, how's it going? I'm fine, Jesse. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Um, We're going to talk about SSGB, which is a book by Len Dayton from 1978, did you say? Yep. Yeah. Um, This is a book you mentioned um, last year, I think it was last year, and I thought, well, why haven't I read that book? (laughs) Uh, Set in Nazi-occupied Britain in 1941, and that makes it kind of an alternate history novel, although with some discussions with uh, Luke Burge, he questioned whether it could be uh, alternate history. What do you, what do you, why did you pick this book as a, as a, a book of note? There are a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, I enjoyed it a lot when I read it. So if it leaves a lasting impression, that says something about its artistic character. Usually, yeah. Yeah. Uh, second, it seems to me that it raises some very interesting questions about why one would even want to write a an alternate history novel. Uh, I know that I've had trouble sometimes in teaching Hawthorne. Nathaniel Hawthorne. In teaching mm-hmm. Hawthorne. Um, finding that I have students who don't realize that Hawthorne himself is writing historical novels. That is, The Scarlet Letter is written in the middle of the 19th century, but it's set at the end of the 17th century. And for modern readers who aren't careful, they may misunderstand from the, to them, old-fashioned language of The Scarlet Letter that to its contemporary readers it was already taking them back into the past. With SSGB, we have an alternate history, but it is also an historical novel. That is, it's a 1978 novel about 1941, rather than an alternate 1978. And so I wind up thinking, what was going on in 1978 that can be addressed more vigorously by looking at 1941 than just having, say, an alternate 1978. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a very complicated time structure here, but Dayton handles it so smoothly that I don't think you actually wind up asking the question. You just wind up feeling what the book is about. Uh, Right. So I I Uh, like that a lot. There are other questions that it raises, too. One is the, the relationship between science fiction in general alternate history in particular, and detective fiction. I mean, both of them are what Poe called tales of ratiocination. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. stories where you have to figure out what's going on, where someone has to figure out what's going on, and yet maybe it's not all that science fictional to be a detective, and maybe it's not all that detecting to write science fiction. Here we have something that asks us to consider which really mostly colors what's going on. Uh, so it's another reason that I think the book is a, a nifty one to talk about. Yeah, I I think the most similar book I've read is probably Robert Harris's uh, Fatherland. 
I haven't read that one. I hear it's terrific. It's interesting, and they made a movie out of it, and uh, also a a terrific audio drama for BBC. And what's interesting about that one is it's set in Berlin in the 1960s, sort of parallel, I guess, with with, uh, Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, except uh, it doesn't go for the... uh, the genre meta stuff it's more you know police procedural in 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 that sense it's much closer to to ssgb but um you know hitler's been in power for 20 years 30 years he's he's rather elderly and and um it it the one of the the i guess the the surprises, which we also have in SSGB, you know, is what what's the surprise going to be? In in that one, it's it's you know all the Jews are killed, right? So there's there, there's no Jewish problem anymore. Um, and I think in in H uh, uh, in the Man in the High Castle, there the we hear the rumors about what's going on in Africa. They're they're doing uh, you know cl- cleansing the land of uh, the land of Africa and and in. Um, in the Man in the High Castle, that is so frightening. I guess Philip K. Dick said, I, I don't want to even deal with that. But it's, it's thinking about um, what would it be like under Nazi rule. Uh, Nazis had this idea, we're going to change the world. And that is almost science fictional, just in the sense that they are utopianists. They are dystopia, <laughs> these dysto- dystopia creators. And so I'm always interested in anything uh, alternate history and and Nazis, but this one's a it's it's very narrow in scope. It's it's set in a very short period of time, slightly different, and I can see uh, why people would say, yeah, it's not really science fiction. Alt- is alter what makes science alternate history science fiction as opposed to just regular fiction? Just the s- historical setting. Well, it seems to me that. One way of looking at science fiction is to suggest that the work is fantastic, and science fiction is a a variety of fantastic literature. Um, Well, if it's literature, it's a fantastic film if it's film and so on. Uh, Mm -hmm. But unlike the things that one tends to just call fantasy, at least publishers call fantasy, Science fiction tries to make its setting or its unusual element or whatever that fantastic component may be plausible against a background of science, whether it's real science or itself fictional science. There is this claim for plausibility that there the notion that there's a a theoretical framework that makes sense of this world, even if it's a fantastic sense. So uh, Dracula can't be seen in a mirror because he has no soul, but you can see the hairbrush in the mirror while the woman is brushing her hair. You know, it makes no, it doesn't have a consistent framework there. But in Frankenstein, we start with the notion of Volta uh, making the dead frog's limb move with electricity, and we wind up having reanimated charnel parts. And there is, by the way, a wonderful, wonderful reference to Frankenstein in SSGB. Um, so, well, what, what, Which one is that? I don't think I caught that. Um, it says, you remember that uh, there's that uh, disinterment of Karl Marx from Highgate 
Uh, right. And we're told that I, I, I'll try to find the exact page for you. Um, let's see. Yes, was, uh, we're told that uh, <clears throat> this would be they, the, the chapter begins. Highgate Cemetery is like a film set overgrown mm-hmm. by sooty trees and bushes, strangled by weeds. Its narrow paths are lined with ancient tombstones leaning at all angles and pocked with mold and moss. Not even the efforts of a platoon of engineers had lessened the feeling that here was a location for a remake of Frankenstein. Ah, yeah, the film. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, but when, in fact, there is that tremendous explosion that's part of the political motivation of what's going on here, um, we are told... They've been disinterring, uh, as I say, Karl Marx. Uh, we're told the explosion, the explosion came from the grave itself, wouldn't you say? And it seems to me that what Dayton is doing there, and you, could, you can dismiss it as too easy, but you know, if one didn't catch it, I guess it wasn't too easy. Um, if the explosion comes from the grave itself, in part, what Dayton is saying is Marx is what led to this explosion that's going to change the world and the future and so on. Mm. But it's also saying it's those dead things that we keep trying to reanimate that get away from us and make the world terrible. And in that sense, Dayton, by that reference, those two connected references to Frankenstein, I think is suggesting that his novel is able to explore the importance of knowledge, having it or not having it, understanding its implications or not, just as much as science fiction does. So in that sense, the thinking through of knowledge uh, provides a, uh, a framework that justifies the trouble of trying to create this alternate history. Um, it's telling yeah. us something about today. Yeah, I see that. And it's interesting. Um, it, 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 so alternate history does what science fiction does, but without pretending to, you know, set it in a logical future. It sets it in a logical past. I think that's, in, in a lot of ways, that's so. I think in a lot of ways that's so. But, you know, you mentioned Man in the High Castle earlier, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a little tiny piece in there that I really love. Um, if, remember, I'll just remind both of us that the alternate history there is one where the Nazis, where I should say the, the Axis won World War II um, mm-hmm. in 1945. So now we're in 1962, which is also the publication date of the novel. And the United States has been carved up in a lot of different ways. Uh, but we are also told that in this post-World War II United States, such as what it, it has, Truman, in fact, did integrate the armed services as he really did in the real 1946. Um, I think it was 46. And because Truman really integrated the armed services in this alternate um, 1946, in the Mm -hmm. alternate 1962, racism is no longer a problem in America. Well, that's really lovely because in the real 1962, any reader of the novel knows that racism truly is an enormous problem right. in America. So what, what Dick is doing is saying, okay, I'm going to look in the mirror and turn everything around. That's the alternate history. Now I'm going to look in the mirror 
of that alternate history and turn everything around again. And guess what? It doesn't turn it back to what happened before you looked in the mirror. It gives Mm -hmm. us yet another view of things. So it's not just, I think, that alternate history is commenting on uh, what the past could have been. I think that alternate history is often ironically looking at what the present is. And that, I think, happens in Man in the High Castle when we realize that even though Truman integrated the armed forces, we still have racism in America. And I think what's going on in SSGB is that even though we have um, whatever we learn, we haven't discussed that yet, but about 1941, 1978, Britain is still a place that is overgrown with bureaucracy where people make compromises all the time in order to get along in the power structure and so on. So I, I think SSGB is talking about 1978 Great Britain in a way, but making it hugely dramatic by setting it in a Nazi-occupied Great Britain of 1941. And that's what science fiction typically does, is it takes things that regular literature would see in small, realistic doses and make them into huge, dramatic symbols. It's interesting, um, you're you're talking about uh, the bureaucracy in in 1978 London. I know that uh, people like Michael Caine said, yeah, I'm leaving this country. They're, uh, they're upset with, you know, the tax rates and, uh, you know, the, uh, even the, the, the video, not the video, the uh, movie system in the UK is, you know, it's not as flexible as they'd like it to be. And so projects can't get done. They're more done like a sausage factory. And so <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of British actors left. Uh, left the UK to, you know, go to the United States, where I guess they thought that there would be less uh, bureaucracy or what have you in in the the movie industry, anyways. Um, but in the same sense, I think there's a line in the in SSGB about how the uh, the SS and uh, actually all of the German occupy occupation forces are just bureaucracies. That it's 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 all war between different different. Uh, bureaucracies, indeed, the the Abwehr and the the SS and the uh, the army and the Luftwaffe and and they've all got competing rivalries, um, and that's something I've read read a lot about how the the Nazi system of government worked is is you, Hitler just liked to line people up and have them fight over their own power and then he'd sit back and and you know choose the winner. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting analysis. I, I I'm I was looking at it more as a you know just a historic uh, a book set in 1941 because it was it was you know about the time when if Operation Sea Lion had worked the invasion of England had worked then they would be there. But yeah, he didn't have to set it in set it in in the 40s. I guess maybe he. I, I'm not sure. It's 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 interesting that. It's also it's sort of two stories. It's got a um, SSGB has a uh, mystery element, and then it's also got the um, the the war element, I guess. You know, the resistance element. Right, right, I, and they're related. Well, one of the books that this one called to mind. Um, I, I'm thinking in terms of this this resistance um, is Roth's The Plot Against America. 
um, which is a book in which Lindbergh, who is uh, an enormous sympathizer uh, of the Nazis, uh, he was infamous for it, in fact, um, gets elected president. And the U.S. collaborates with the Axis, and uh, and there we are. The world, the war ends differently. But what Roth does, and it doesn't need us to go into the details of how it works out. But but what Roth does is through the resistance that develops to the Lindbergh administration, and one thing or another, um, it turns out that. There are revolts, and by the time you get to the present, America is exactly the same as it had been. Mm. All right, so there's a real question there: are are historical forces so big that individual action, which we think matters to us as people and as readers, really comes to nothing? In SSGB, we are hinted, we get the hint at the end that now that America is going to have these calculations that will allow for the atomic bomb, America will indeed come in um, against the Germans and will win the war. And so right. there's the suggestion that even if Hitler had won, uh, had succeeded in conquering the Great Britain in 41, still these historical forces, which to some extent are shaped by technological developments, uh, putting us back in science fiction, would come out the same. And as I started thinking about this, it occurred to me that, that most, a, a lot of science, a lot of alternate history books do sort of show us that you can't mess with history. Well, that's the, the old Greek idea of, you know, you can't escape your destiny. Indeed. Uh, going back to Oedipus, etc., Indeed. It's, it, it, isn't that counter science fiction in the sense that, you know, uh, there's the two competing theories about history. It's, it's history created by great men or history is, is social forces and, and, and natural, natural um, pressures, etc. Uh, absolutely. Hitler is a, is a strong contender for, you know, this is one person who had a particular set of ideals which he had supporters for. Um, but if there is, you know, th th there are such figures, Alexander the Great, uh, you know, H Adolf Hitler, Napoleon Bonaparte, these are the atyp or the typical uh, great men of, of, of history that people want to say, you know, look, if, if this man had been shot, if this man had never been born, what, what would be different? And clearly, those are, you know, quite in contrast to to I, I don't know the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, you know, as a as a more sweeping scope, is is there a um, is this just a plot device that people are saying you know let's go back to the Greeks and make it a Greek tragedy sort of thing? Well, I, I, or <laughs> I would, are they trying to say this is reality? Well, I wouldn't call it just a plot device. Um, you know, in uh, in Moorcock's Behold the Man. That's a great story. Yeah. I mean, this guy goes back and he's trying to prevent the crucifixion and winds up becoming, at least it's my memory of the book, becomes so affected by what's going on that he winds up taking the place of Jesus on the cross and the faith, whatever that faith is that is Christianity, that faith is undiminished. It really doesn't matter who's 
protoplasmic body was on that cross, you know, in a way, the salvation that Jesus's death uh, promises to Christians, that salvation is still there. So one guy tries to change history, and it turns out he couldn't. On the other hand, in Less Darkness Fall, you know, Sprague de Camp's uh, book about trying to hold off the Middle Ages, just as you say, he succeeds. He really does keep the Middle Ages from happening. You know, things don't go dark. Uh, I, when I thought about that, I thought, well, you know, you can have a great man if he knows how to do the right things and the society will support it. That's what Harry Seldon does in the Foundation Trilogy. It still, it still collapses, but I guess he mitigated well, it. Well, he, right, he cuts idea. it from, from 15,000 years to 1,000 years or something. Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, that's, I don't know, for the people in the intervening 14,000 years, that's probably a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what, what you just said there, you know, is it just a plot device? I, I, had, well, I guess the just is, is it, it, can, it can be a bit sweeping. Oh, sure, yeah. and I, didn't, I don't mean to be critical at all, Jesse. What, I, what occurred to me is this, that a lot of science fiction, from, from Mary Shelley on, we're back to Frankenstein, a lot of science fiction is concerned with the relationship between the individual and the community. That is, when one person has knowledge, hence power, that separates him from everyone else, the question is, should that person be restrained by the community or not? Should he accept the, the moral strictures of the community, the, the needs of the community, and so on? So, in a way, that kind of science fiction, which is so common, um, is one person in relation to the social forces around him at that moment. So, think of that as horizontal. In alternate history works... What we often find, I think, and SSGB is a fine example of that with Douglas Archer, is the individual not in relation to the horizontal forces of his time, but the historical forces. Think of them as sort of vertical, running from the past to the future. And in a way, it's the same question. What's the relationship of the individual to forces larger than the individual? Except alternate history books look at those forces and we call them historical, going vertically, whereas most science fiction thinks of it as community, and it goes horizontally. But I think it really still may be understandable as those larger things that, you know, we, we think we'd like to change them, but, but can we? And sometimes, as in Less Darkness Fall, we can make a difference. And sometimes, as in SSGB and uh, The Plot Against America, we can't. But the exploration there, I think alternate history is a great way to do that. And if that means now we have a plausible framework within which to understand how the, the fantastic works its way out, then I'd say, yeah, alternate history is science fictional, even if it doesn't reek of science fiction as you read it. Hmm. I, I, I ended up thinking a lot about... Um you know, I guess I, I was thinking about some of the things you were saying about, and I just didn't notice it until now. Uh, the um, the the setting being 1941 made me think. Well, at the time, people, you know, uh, people looking back always think, oh, if there's a just war, it was World War Two, 
and it seems very obvious if you look back at least at least um uh, looking at uh, the war in europe war in, in asia is it is equally horrific uh in many respects but it's also you know it's not it's not where the majority of north americans were thinking um uh well we have a duty to go over there like we did in world war 1 um you know the united states didn't join until late 1941 uh canada was in in 1939 and yet the 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 holocaust didn't actually truly begin until quite well into the war and that the fact that it did begin was horrific but it also justifies a lot of the um the horror that that came in a, in attacking civilians on the on the nazi side and the the occupation you know imagine in 1941 you're living in london at what point do you say well you know what we lost the war we got to deal with this archer you know has to do his job but he also doesn't want to you know submit to his overlords at, but imagine the book skipped ahead 50 years and his son's you know who who's already we thought his son was going to there's a scene where his son is going to ask him about whether he works for the Gestapo and and Archer says no you know I work for the police and he says so we think the the kid was getting ridiculed at school about his father being a, a Nazi stooge well no all the kids at school they want to collect Gestapo badges and they're really into you know collecting militaria they're not they're not trying to persecute uh, Archer, they're trying to use him to get access to the, the cool stuff they want. right? Those kids are going to grow up assuming that you know the sequel to SSGB is in, the United States is invading uh, Europe, which would be... I don't know how that could even happen without England or some place to, to launch from. It, it's, it's, they're going to have to deal with having lived under uh, a fascist regime for 50 or 60 years like like they did in Spain, right? Spain had a fascist dictatorship from the 1930s until the 1970s. Yep. And yet the people in Spain sort of dealt with it, right? They said, yeah, we lost the war, you know? And they sort of came out of it in a surprising way that, you know, it's a democracy now. And kind of people have a good life there. How did, how do, How do we reconcile the idea of living under Nazi occupation and yet also noticing that they didn't win, right? There's that tension there that I, I thought was was kind of... It, it, it struck me even more than in books like uh, The Man in the High Castle and, and in Fatherland. I, I just didn't... I didn't know what... If that was in the book or if that was something I'm just drawing out of it. I, uh, I, I think... I, I resonate to exactly those things, Jesse. I think it is in the book. I think that... In one way, this book looks like the tale of the great detective, you know, the sort of classic. Um, yeah, he's Archer of the Yard, exactly. right? So it's like Sherlock Holmes. But I think that Dayton shows us that we're actually moving here much more toward the modern, complicated um, Jean Le Carré sort of 
what does it mean to be involved in these things, uh, what am I if I do these things kind of story. Uh, there's a wonderful scene early on where we get a Sherlock Holmes kind of explanation. Oh, well, you thought he was this because he has his left arm doing this and, and right. so on. And then Archer comes along and shows him why all of his deductions are incorrect. So we have this this re- recollection of Sherlock Holmes. In fact, he's even called he even called, yeah. calls Harry Watson. Um, uh, he had this wonderful recollection of Sherlock Holmes, and then we're told that all of those mental scientific calculations um, are mistaken. And then later, you may remember, much later in the book, uh, Archer is just exhausted, and he finds himself overtired. He needs to get some rest, but he can't. He lays down in bed, and he picks up a book, and almost instantly he falls That's asleep. That's uh, Agatha Christie. Exactly. Exactly. So Len Dayton is telling us that the, the, the great detective is not really right, things are much more complicated than simple straight deduction would allow. And indeed, maybe it's boring and soporific to switch, stay with that. So the ambiguities that you're talking about, it seems to me, are in fact here. We see them, for instance, in the, the enormously important relations between fathers and sons. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. how, how Dougie is actually trying to use his dad rather than condemn his dad. And that's something that the dad doesn't, Douglas Archer doesn't really get. Uh, it turns out that, that Douglas Archer at key points says, I wish my father was still alive. Um, here I am without a father to talk to. And Huth, which, who is, you know, uh, this evil guy who uh, Archer is caught between Huth and Kellerman in, mm-hmm. in the, as they represent the institutional battles, at the end, when Huth is going to be condemned, Huth, who has says, I always hated my father. He was a mean bastard. Please tell him that I died bravely. <laughs> you know, the, this book is about those tremendous, among other things, those tremendous ambivalences we have in our strongest filial relations, the relations with our parents. And as you mentioned, fatherland is the other obvious comparison with SSGB. If the state stands for, you know, the parent who tells you what you should do, well, you know, you you want to do what the state wants you to do. You want to be a good citizen. But on the other hand, sometimes that means not being yourself. And this book really does explore those ambivalences. It's much more subtle and much more psychologically provocative, I think, than a regular tale of the great detective it's uh it's <laughs> you know you were saying at the beginning uh talking about what was happening in 1978 that that prompted prompted uh len dayton to to write this um well he he talks about you know having written some historical fiction in not alternate history but historical fiction set during the battle of britain etc um and and then in the introduction um you know and he had i guess he had come across some some documentary uh, uh some documents pertaining to what the what the nazi plan in britain was but um i, I thought it was interesting in one of the introductions to to the paperback editions the late, i think in in 1987 edition um 
he he has a quotation from uh, from Albert Speer, uh, who was alive and writing in the 1970s. Uh, he says, um, my book, Inside the Third Reich, never reached uh, the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, <laughs> it was everything you always wanted to know about sex, that, <laughs> but were afraid to ask, that always remained at number one. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you know, Albert Speer was, is what people say, what, one of my uncles who, who gave me a copy of Inside the Third Reich, he said uh, he was the good Nazi. He was, he was the guy who didn't particularly endorse any of the racial policies. He was more, uh, well, it's my country. I got to get some stuff done, and and uh, I am a, a competent person. And hey, Hitler likes me. <laughs> and and he was the he was one of the few uh, high ranking guys who was let out of prison relatively uh, soon. I think he was out. Uh, I guess in the late sixties or early seventies. Um, it's a. It's 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 an interesting um, it's an interesting comparison to talk you know talk about how how were things run from the inside versus how we think they were run and 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 yet it, this is a this isn't a a nonfiction book this is a how does it feel to live under that yes and I'm I'm always interested in in that sort of that sort of play in in uh, the Man in the High Castle. Of course, it was under Japanese occupation. We we don't see much of the German occupation, but I I thought the most interesting aspect of of the Man in the High Castle was actually hearing it from the Italian uh, Italians' point of view. If you remember the main character, well, not the main character. One of the main characters in in Man in the High Castle was. Uh, so supposed to be an Italian immigrant to the Eastern United States, but in fact he was a, uh, a Nazi spy who was um, pretending to be Italian, but he was actually German. Right. <laughs> and he he had a sort of a false identity which he had adopted, which was a, a sort of a resentful Italian uh, uh, who who had fought in a whole bunch of wars, but he was actually a, uh, a uh, he he had adopted a false identity that he was actually expressing, um, and he had adopted it so much that it did. You know, he was doing it almost unconsciously. He he was he was doing it for no reason. In that it, it didn't affect the woman he was with. Well, in, it's right. I mean, you you call to mind um, Mother Night to me. Uh, the Vonnegut novel, mm-hmm. where I haven't read that one. Ah, well, in the introduction, it's an, it's another World War II novel. There's a guy who's an American who's approached by someone um, and told to. Uh, this American has uh, is a, does radio broadcasts uh, from Germany, and he is told to uh, become a vitriolic. Um, anti-American broadcaster. He's part of the German propaganda effort. Uh, but the reason that he agrees to do all of this is that every now and then he will be told certain words to put into his broadcast and that will be of immense help to the resistance. It'll be a way of getting messages out. And so, but no one knows that. 
except the people presumably who who hear those coded messages. Um, and the book uh, begins with us uh, seeing him trying to set his own mind in order as he's about to be tried for treason by the victorious Americans. Uh, the the theme that runs through it that he says explicitly is, be careful what you pretend to be, because you are what you pretend to be. And so we have that same kind of duplicity that you're talking about with the Italian Nazi, uh, mm-hmm. that we see with characters in SSGB who don't want to. I mean, when when Dougie asks his father... Um, do you work for the Gestapo? And Archer, Douglas Archer says, no, I work for the police. Um, and They're in a separate building. <laughs> exactly. The son says, but aren't they in the same compound? And he says, no, they're in a separate building. Well, gosh, Rudy, <laughs> does that really make an adequate difference? Um, when the bad guys and the good guys have the same interests in keeping certain elements down, when you're helping the bad guys, aren't you one of the bad guys? That's what the book is asking. And I guess what it's telling us in part is there's no way to not be one of the bad guys when those interests are aligned. Sometimes you just can't be a good guy. That, I think, is a crucial difference between this as a detective story and mm-hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle as a detective story. Sometimes you can't, you just can't really be a good guy. Life is more complicated. I think Dayton gets that right. I think, I think you're right. I, I, the closest uh, Arthur Conan Doyle gets to, to addressing that is sort of Holmes is, is so purely, um, purely interested in figuring things out that he, he'll break the law, but it's not to do bad. It's just to, just to figure things out even better, right? Right. Um, in, this, in this, nobody's really cares about breaking the law or not. Um, it's only about, you know, can I get away with it, and uh, what would the effect be, and and that sort of thing. It's it's interesting the um, the the play with the king in the story. Yes, um, we've got we've got a. I thought it was interesting. I just I saw the king's speech not that long ago. I, I don't know if you've seen. I have marvelous movie. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie. It's 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 much smaller in scale than I expected, but I guess I shouldn't have expected much because it is it is about you know, one man and his speech and the relationship he has with, I mean, it was a, it's a nice movie, but it's very small in scale. Um, and I guess uh, in comparison to, uh, what was, I guess there's, there's some other elements in there, but it's, it's, it really is about, about a very sort of narrow aspect of the story. But I, I think it's interesting that in, in this book, he's, he's basically, um, uh, a mute as well, right? Yes. He he. Uh, they they say that this was caused by uh, perhaps some bombing of Buckingham Palace, but um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much. Uh, I, I I'm not a big. Uh, I'm not uh, well acquainted with George's George the Sixth story. I think it's George the Sixth, isn't it, or George the Fifth? I think the Sixth, but yeah, I think I think you know perhaps. Not everyone was aware that he had a speech impediment at the time. Right. Um, so in this book, he's he's effectively uh, a MacGuffin in a sense. <laughs> he's he's you know everybody's trying to manipulate him for their own ends. Um, and and there was a line about how 
Canada didn't want him. And I thought, what? <laughs> and, and then talking about the prime minister in Canada not being uh, a fan of having uh, a, com- a competition in Canada. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me at all because they, they also didn't mention the name of the prime minister who would have, presume, presuming it was a straight from 1940 story, it would have been Mackenzie King. Um, so Mackenzie King and the King, uh, they didn't mention his name maybe because um, uh, Len Dayton didn't mention the name because it was it was King and King. But the um, the fact that uh, if you brought the King, uh, Mackenzie King to Canada, oh, sorry, King George V to, <laughs> the, to Canada, uh, King George VI, I'm sorry, it is King George VI, uh, to Canada, then it would have been a... Uh, 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 it makes no sense to me that that little part, you know, the little section. We can't bring him to Canada, but we can bring him to the United States. And this, the the manipulation going on of what his his purpose is, his symbol. He's a symbol for the resistance. He's a symbol for the United States. And uh, it's sort of, I'm not sure what he was trying to achieve with that, other than it is. A MacGuffin that everybody's after. But who says that, that Jesse? Who says that Canada won't take him? Uh, yeah, that's true. It's uh, it's not somebody we can trust. Exactly. It's not somebody we can trust. Exactly. Uh, but I would think that that would have been. Yeah, I didn't trust. Him. Right. I mean, <laughs> per- Colonel Mayhew, Colonel Mayhew, all along has been planning the death of the king because a feeble king would have been a terrible symbol from Mayhew's viewpoint. Yeah. So he's he's spirited the queen and princesses off so that they could then be brought on the scene and they, hale and healthy, could be the, the figureheads around which to mobilize the resistance. So getting Canada to not accept the king, it seems to me, is, uh, is again part of the our inability to know what's really going on. And you, as a Canadian, picked up on that. But I'm, and perhaps British readers would have picked up on that. Uh, I'm guessing that many American readers wouldn't have picked up on that being wrong. But at the end of the book, we can realize that all of these things are to some extent untrustworthy because of the puppet masters behind the scenes. Well, uh, it's interesting that uh, near the end we find out that Archer's sort of been dumb about a, a few things for for such a smart guy, and you know, being so, you know. What they say about police—they're the most cynical people in the in the world because they they've seen all the horrible things that people do to each other. Yeah. But um, the uh, the the fact that you know he doesn't know his own uh, his own uh, assistant that well. Uh, what's his Harry name? Woods. Harry Harry Woods. Yeah. Um, he didn't know what he what was happening. You know, behind the scenes there, and he he's also you know he's sort of buying into a lot of the. The propaganda. Uh, it's. I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is the greatest novel ever because it leaves a lot of things hanging for me that I wanted to uh, be, you know, a little more explicitly stated. And I, I, I think there is some room for ambiguity as a as an, a, an effect effective um, tool. Mm-hmm. But it felt a lot like a, a historical. <laughs> A historical um, mystery set in an alternate history story, only in the in the sense that uh, it's it's set in England, right? If it had been set on the Channel Islands, um, we wouldn't ha- be having this conversation. That we wouldn't be talking about this book. 
because it's not it, it would be like more an Agatha Christie style story even if, even if it has uh, you know the historical elements I, I've always wanted to know why do we care about about calling something alternate history when really every fiction is alternate history if it's set in you know on a street that doesn't exist in a city that does exist with a person who doesn't exist uh but who attends a university that does exist and why is that what makes that not massively different than a big alternate history novel like this one what sets that apart other than the historical forces and the social, the social impact, perhaps. Well, it seems to me that, indeed, the, the question of whether or not history is simply a collection of things that happened or is, indeed, to those things as physics is to phenomena, that is, if history really is forces, if history really does have a sort of set of rules that tell us how things will be. Um, Coming to understand those is important, and we see them often by contrast. I mean, that's how we see lots of things, by contrast. That's what science fiction does for us all the time. When you read The Sun Also Rises, and we get um, real streets in the real Paris, and we get mm-hmm. the real running of the bulls and the real Pamplona, but all full of characters who never existed. We don't think this is an alternative. No. We think of it as a made-up representative of things that could well have happened. Whereas when we get an alternate history, we do think of it as contrastive, and that throws the un-alternate history, that is, our sense of history, into sharper relief. Uh, It seems to me that it's that sharpness of relief that science fiction has done every time it's made up some strange new thing. Um, When when the Martians invade in the War of the Worlds, um, that's putting into much stronger relief what it means to be a conquering people. Um, So I, I think alternate history is a claim that a text might make I realize I'm personifying by saying that, Uh, (laughs) but I I, I think employing a genre that makes us have to think of this as potentially contrastive rather than merely plausible or representative of our own reality gives us a different kind of of look at what's going on. Um, And I think SSGB does give us another kind of look at what's going on. I'm thinking about the real 1978 and recognizing the the institutional issues that are alive in England, such as the ones you're talking about with with Michael Caine. You know, let's mm-hmm. you know, our country is controlling us too much. Medicine has been socialized. I mean, all kinds of things are going on. In, in order, and our empire is gone, and it looks like other people are calling the, our shots for the future. Uh, and who are those other people? They are indeed the Americans on whom the British have to depend and on whom they depend at the end of this novel by Dayton. Mm-hmm. So you know, this may be a sort of lament for the end of empire um, 
we haven't lived up to the expectations of our fathers. And we see that again and again in the father-son relations here. There's, there's, he, I also, even though I agree with you that it's not a great novel, I think we can see so many wonderful things that it does that it's a novel well, well worth the reading. For instance... Uh, it's worth reading. It's definitely worth reading. It, it got me thinking, and it, it, it's well-written. That's basically what I want from a, a lot of books, you know. I want to think, and I want to enjoy the, the experience. And that's not always true. I, I, I know, uh, I don't know if you read it, but I think uh, one of, Star Tide Rising, have you read that? I by have, yes. David Brent? I think it's a very pr- provocative and interesting concept, and I think it's one of the worst books I've ever read, because <laughs> it's so badly written. But it's impressively thought-provoking. I guess it's the idea behind the series rather than the book itself. You know, the uplift is an amazing uh, way of looking at what 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 makes us different from other less talking animals, <laughs> right. less communicative animals. Sure, what makes us all that much different? And 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 in exploring that, uh, you know, the, the uplift of other creatures it allows us to look at our own and what makes us different from our predecessors and our our co uh, co um i don't know coexisting animals <laughs> but but uh, yeah yeah i don't want to read any more books by by him because i i found it very difficult to enjoy myself when i was yelling at the book you you're talking about the <laughs> The Star Trek series, not Dayton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, whereas Lane Dayton's very smooth and very uh, well written, very wry and very enjoyable, uh, but also thought provoking. Well, I, I'm. It, I, I have a feeling. You want to weigh in on Star Tide Rising? No, 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 or? no. I don't. I don't want to to do that. I do <laughs> think that this notion of uplift is very interesting, and I give uh, David Brin a lot of credit for it, uh, for the way he handles it. Although we've seen it handled in other ways for a yeah. long time, starting at the very, certainly most classically with the Island of Doctor Moreau. Hmm. But I would. I guess I just give this book more credit for craft, which maybe I value more in a book than uh, other readers do, <clears throat> than I'm hearing in what you say. For example... No, no, I, 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 no, I totally agree. This is a well-crafted book. However, um, but I think, I, the think craft, I think the craft actually has thematic two, consequences. Two okay, let's hear uh, it. For, for instance, um, back to that Highgate explosion, you know, in, in the, mm-hmm. the cemetery. Um, the explosion, we're told, punched Archer in the face like a padded glove. Facing uphill, he saw the earth round the grave shudder as it came, became first a mound, then a hill, and finally a great cloud of smoke and dirt. And then earth showered down upon him like a tidal wave, knocking him over and choking him with dirt. This confluence of the word grave and the earth itself turning into water in effect, presages the invasion at the end where the amphibious mm-hmm. vehicles come in. Now, at this key moment that is presaging um, what will be done to get rid of, uh, to, to, to save the king temporarily 
and get the... Yeah, it's not so much an invasion as a, a raid or well, something. Well, you're right. It's a raid. Well, this is not a war. It's just one explosion. Yeah. But you're quite right. At this moment, um, he looks up and he sees the carnage the explosion creates. Archer sees it and says, There was no sound anywhere, not even from the officer who was struggling to extricate himself from the bloody folds of an ornate military standard. He ripped the torn flag from an arm that was no more than a stump. Now, that's a wonderful detail because that guy takes off the flag and realizes he has been, and I intend this pun, and I think so does Dayton, disarmed. (laughs) Spode, the guy who has the calculations, has been disarmed. And he tells us, that is, he tells he tells Archer when they meet in the guardhouse that he lost his arm because he tried to stop a tank and he stuck a tire iron into the treads. He says the tank didn't even notice that it rolled on with his arm. So in both cases, what we see is that arms and the man, I sing that, that armaments disarm the very people who would fight for them. And the plot, again, I mean the pun, hinges on finding the film of the calculations for how to make an atom bomb. It hinges on those that film, which is stuck in the hinge pin for an <laughs> artificial elbow so that an arm may or may not function. Now, <laughs> this is a very well-worked-out, ramified set of symbolic resonances that ask us, what does it mean for an army to be armed? What is it like for us to be disarmed by the social situation we are in? Can we retrieve our ability and arm ourselves by having better <laughs> knowledge? This runs all through the book. I don't think this is an accident. When I see No, I think you're improving the book, right? As you're speaking, it's a, very interesting. I, I didn't pick up on any of that. I... I I, I I saw all the same. It's like you're Sherlock Holmes and I'm Watson here, uh, <laughs> listening. Oh, of course, now it makes sense <laughs> when you put it like that. Right. Well, okay. But when I see things like that, I'm thinking, way to go. <laughs> you know, this, this there's a pattern here, and it's a wonderful pattern. I also think if I can go back to to you the, the question about um how how many mistakes Archer makes for a smart guy. I don't think that's an accident of characterization. I think that is Yeah, I think you're point. right. I think that's, yeah. You know, and at one point, he acknowledges his own mistake when he, he says, when he finally realizes that it was Mayhew that killed uh, William Spode, not John Spode who killed William Spode, mm-hmm. he says to himself, I mean, we're getting his thoughts, Once I stopped thinking of them as, while I thought of them as brothers, they had to be in the room together. Once I stopped thinking of them as brothers and just started thinking of them as individuals, of course that's not what happened. Well, human relations do blind us to what's going on. We really do see things in terms of those structures that we presume define how people interact. And And it's also how he's blind about Harry Woods and... And um, their relationship and what what's going on with his his interaction with the resistance, exactly, 
Exactly. It's, it, very parallel. You're, you're quite right. And so in that way, it seems to me there is indeed a psychological subtlety and acuteness in this novel that makes it worth thinking about. Maybe I just have the advantage of the fact that for me, this is not my first reading. So I got to that, pick up on things. That, that makes sense to me as well. Um, I can't. I can't imagine anyone smarter than me. But I. I. I if, if there is somebody, it's probably because they've read the book twice. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But of That's course, great. like most detective fictions, reading it. Excuse me. Like most good detective fictions, and this is true for for Doyle. After you've read it once, go back and read it again, and there will be something else there. In the case of Doyle. What is most famously there is the acute observation of the social scene. Um, Dayton, too, gives us acute observation of the social scene. I love that, that dinner party in the castle, you know, in the mansion. And he talks about all the different guests and everything. I mean, I, I feel like I'm right back in 1941. It's as good a picture of upper class uh, behavior as you get in, say, Remains of the Day. Mm-hmm. Um, but... With Doyle, that's most of where the observation lies, except for the detection. Whereas in Dayton, a lot of the observation has to do with understanding human motivation. Um, That makes it more like the modern spy novel and less like the great detective. And I think it's a good one. I think it's yeah. It's it's it. It it is a surprisingly good mystery as well. I I was genuinely interested in in how it was playing out and I uh, as as things as we learn things we we gain I, I mean I, I think it, 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 he could have been a I, I assume he's still alive Len Dayton I, I don't know um, well if he could have been or could be a uh, a mystery writer I don't think that's what his focus was he was always uh, sort of the spy guy right uh, uh, the Ipcris file oh, yeah. and bunch of other sort of uh spy and i guess war war books but um uh this is this is a yeah he did those that series of berlin game mexico set game london set match. match right yeah and maybe some other series like that but i, I i'm i'm surprised how uh how good a mystery it was <laughs> well good i i'm, I'm glad I, I don't say that because i'm an a particular advocate of this particular book, but when we began talking, you said you read it because you had heard me praise it, and so well, yeah, I don't it, want to you, be guilty. It of come up in a conversation, yeah, right. and that's that's often what happens is uh, you'll mention a book, and I'll say, hmm. You were talking before we started the podcast. You were talk. We were talking with Luke briefly, um, and you mentioned uh, another alternate history book, which I have not read, and I wanted to get you to tell me about that again, along with the. Uh, the the spelling of it. Oh, Pavan. Um, Pavan, yeah. How do you spell uh, that? P a v a n e by someone named Keith Roberts. Um, a Pavan is a is a now no longer done dance. Uh, it's a dance with many complicated figures in it, sort of like a uh, a square dance. Say. And, okay. Uh, this is a novel set in. If I recall correctly, I read it years ago, but it's a novel set in uh, a then contemporary Britain, so maybe the 1950s or 60s, whenever the book was written, um, but one in which the Reformation fails. And so the Roman 
Catholic Church, well, I guess it would just be the Catholic Church, since you know, mm-hmm. right? The uh, at least from the standpoint of the West, I don't think there's an Orthodox Church in this either. Um, from the so the, the Roman Church um, prevails. Uh, you know the uh, the notion that many people have that the Industrial Revolution is a consequence, uh, in part at least, of a Protestant view that every individual has access to truth if they apply themselves to understanding it, as opposed to a Catholic view. This is all, you know, stereotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, a Catholic view that you need someone to mediate the truth for you, and hence the different role. Yeah, right. you don't need to read. Uh, we'll read for you. Exactly. And so, I mean, my Catholic friends, when I was a kid, um, told me that they went, and I asked them, did they, to Sunday school, did you read the Bible? No, they didn't read the Bible. They read their catechism, which told them what they were mm-hmm. supposed to think about the Bible, but they didn't actually read the Bible. Right. Whereas my Protestant friends went to church on Sunday and a piece of the Bible was read to them and then someone explained how to think about it and they got to think about whether they agreed or disagreed. Um, right. So the notion that science depends upon having that attitude toward individuals being able to assess and determine truth on their own is a, a widespread uh, overgeneralization, I'm sure. Um, in Pavan, because the Catholic Church manages to suppress the uh, Reformation back in the 16th century, in the 20th century, technology is radically, radically reduced compared to what it had been. That is, its progress has been slowed enormously. And that what, sounds int- a fascinating book. It, you know, my memory of it, Jesse, is not strong enough for me to know whether or not I would recommend it to you. I know that once upon a time it was considered quite famous as an alternate history book, but I don't know it how it how it stands up to to things that we've had since, like the plot against America, or speaking of movies, Dirty Rotten Bastards. Dirty Rotten Bastards. What's that? Oh, it's a movie that came out a couple of years ago with uh, uh, Brad Pitt, where he uh, is an American soldier who who gathers together a squad of. Um, oh, Jewish it, soldiers. Uh, oh no, it's called Inglorious Bastards. Oh, I beg Inglorious your Bastards. Rotten, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I knew that right, one. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Michael. Uh, that's Kane. a Michael Caine, exactly. right? Yeah. No, you're quite right. Inglorious Bastards. That's the one yes. that I meant. And, yeah, that has an alternate history bent to it, doesn't it? it? Oh, it certainly does. <laughs> I don't want to give it away to people who haven't seen it yet, but that is really a much more modern take on the possibilities of alternate history. Um, I think Pavan is probably more traditional. It's much more like Behold the Man or Less Darkness Fall. Um, But as I say, it was famous once, and a lot of it stuck in my mind because the way in which we try to imagine a modern world functioning with pre-modern technologies. Um, I finished a very interesting book uh, late last year called The Most Powerful Idea in the World. It's a a book about uh, uh, steam engine and the inventing and and that sort of thing by William Rosen, um, uh-huh. and it was it was it was about how uh, what 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 the what the background for the industrial revolution why did it happen in England as opposed to other places and 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 talking about the the incremental differences between one 
atmospheric engine in another, uh-huh. <laughs> and and how how you know it leverages um, leverages uh, a small a small difference makes a huge difference, and and a small uh, law difference and a small tradition difference makes a huge difference is the argument that the book makes, and I I thought it was incredibly interesting and. The Industrial Revolution is an incredi- incredibly interesting phenomenon. So this uh, Pavan sounds very, uh, very interesting to me right now. I think it may be. I think it may be. But as I say, I, I don't want to make it a recommendation because it's been so long since I've read it. The fact that it sticks in memory may be a, a, an autobiographical quirk rather than an aesthetic judgment. Sounds, sounds like a good place to end it. Sounds good to me, too. Jesse, it's been a pleasure talking with you, as always. And thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And for the suggestion. This was a very a very interesting read. I, I would say it's a good book. Um, it, it's uh, And the more that I think about it after talking to you, the more I think I like it more. <laughs> I'm delighted. Thanks so much. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.